and conflict or confusion for less mature Christians about what it means in considering the cost to follow Jesus. Fourth, the corporate witness of the church. The corporate witness of the church. Church discipline protects our corporate witness to, again, that watching world looking in. The watching world's perspective is what makes this group of people different than us. People notice when there's a whole community of believers whose lives are distinct and different from the world. They can easily, if we're no different from the world, discount our message when our behavior looks just like the world. Again, thinking of that church that I kind of grew up in where what marked that church rather than holiness was unrepentant, rampant adultery. And all four of those add up to the main goal of corrective discipline, which is to make known the glory of who Jesus is, both in his character and in his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection. The local church exercising church discipline in your handout, Roman numeral three. The local church exercising church discipline, again, thinking of corrective discipline, correcting sin in a believer's life for the aim of Christ-like conformity. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about is why this is for our good, ultimately why it's for the glory of God. And so we're going to kind of race through some of these questions together, think through them well, and hopefully ask questions in the process and just kind of engage one another. So um, what, if someone against, what if someone sins against you? Okay, raise your hand if you have ever been sinned against. Everyone, that's right. So what do, you, what do you do, though, if a believer sins against you? How should you react? Should you get on Twitter and just angrily da, 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 enter? Do you give them a piece of your mind? Of course, if they're smaller than you, right? Do you give them the silent treatment? Do you say nothing at all? Turn the cold shoulder and kind of build resentment in your heart? Well, ultimately, what does Jesus have to say about it? Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17, and whenever you get there, I would love for a volunteer to read that, if possible. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, let's see what Jesus has to say in regards to someone sinning against you personally. Thank you so much. So, think about the first step. Think about the first step. In most cases, the first conversation will resolve things in the sense of going to the offender, the one who has sinned against you. And then we see at the final stage of that, right, that you're to tell it to the church, which you should expel that person, the church expelling that person if he or she refuses to repent. And so uh, how do we prepare for a conversation like that? Because at the end of the day, something like that, it's not easy, is it, to have a conversation like that? It's not like you're jumping out of your seat. And if so, you probably also need to repent. But like, it's not an easy conversation to have with a person who, in your mind, has sinned against you, right? Or at times, depending on how subjective the sin is, you could be mistaken. You could be mistaken. 
So what should you do in preparation for a conversation like that? Well, I think the first thing is obvious. We need to pray for that person. That's the first thing you do, no matter what. Sit there, pray without ceasing, and in your praying without ceasing, you pray for that person in your mind who you think has sinned against you. And you pray, not that, that, like for vengeance to, 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 come, uh, uh, to come in your own strength and in your own timing and in your own accord, but pray for that person spiritually, right? That they would be constantly, like yourself, broken over sin and cling to the mercies and treasures of Jesus. That they would desire to know more of Christ. Because I believe if you're praying for that person who in your mind has sinned against you, that will perhaps soften your heart as you engage in that conversation with them, which is so important. So, of course, pray for that person. And secondly, make sure that you actually have a good cause to go to that person. That person being what we'll call throughout the remainder of this class the offender. Plus, it sounds really epic. But anyways, all right, pray that you have good cause to go to the offender. Because the less objective a sin is, the more we need to be ready to have a thorough explanation of why we think that's important. Okay, And if they don't agree with you, again, not objective sin, but subjective sin, that we need to, be continue, we need to continually be in prayer and also drop the matter. So we shouldn't be going around saying, hey, you're proud, repent, or guess what? I'm going to tell it to the church like it's your business. Rather, hey, sister, based on the words you're choosing, what seems apparent, I really fear that you're speaking out of pride. You're having that one-on-one -on -one conversation for their good in Christ. Do you think that may be true? Third, examine your own heart. That's so crucial. Examine your own heart to make sure that your motives are pure, that your motives are proper. Make sure that you're not going to the offender out of anger and revenge, an attitude of superiority, or some other sinful attitude. Make sure that your desire, first and foremost, is reconciliation of that relationship for the good of not only yourself, but also the offender, and ultimately for God's glory. You're, you're, what you're seeking, if there's a, possi if there's a possible, uh, I mean, the baby gets it for sure. Like, if, if, if there's a dent, what you're looking for, okay, is a repair. You're looking for reconciliation to that which you think may be broken. Again, as Jesus says, confess your own sin first when you're alone with the Father communing with him. And then you'll be able to see more clearly your brother's sin according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. Fourth, be very careful. This is so crucial because we can get caught up, and I think we've all been there, we can get caught up in a web of gossip, like a spider web of gossip. Be very careful talking to others about this person's sin. That's the fourth thing. Be very careful talking to others about that person's sin. You see here that Jesus says in Matthew 18, Go and talk to them. Talk to he or she. Not your best friend. Not your offender's wife. right? Not to your social media friend. Your Facebook friend. Talk to them privately. It's fine, to be clear, to seek counsel on how to have the conversation if you need to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use the person who has sinned against you, their name. Because in doing so, we could be entertaining gossip and you find yourself to also be in sin as well. Be very careful that your conversations that you have with others when you're considering the seriousness of some sin does not go into the camp of gossip. And remember that even when you need counsel from another person, 
Again, it bears repeating, you do not have to mention that person's name because you may find yourself in gossip, which should not mark our church. And lastly and finally, when you do talk to the person, the offender, remember to act and speak, not in a spirit of vengeance or defensiveness, but in a spirit of gentleness, humility, and love. Gentleness, humility, and love. Because remember, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. All of these things will make the step of approaching the offender more effective and preserve and protect the church's unity by avoiding obstacles such as pride, such as gossip. So before we move on to the next step in Matthew chapter 18, we're talking about that one-on-one step that hopefully, I think we've probably all been there, that one-on-one step of making things right with a brother and sister. There's four, further two points that, that need to be stressed in regards to that first step, that one-on-one step. Two points that need to be stressed. First, you may be wondering, because I've often wondered this as well, do I go to my brother or sister for every little offense? Everything. Well, most certainly not. It's going to exhaust them and it's going to exhaust you, and there probably will be no repair in that relationship if that's what's constant. Remember, love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean we neglect sin, but it covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 19.11 tells us not to overlook an offense, uh, well, tells us to overlook an offense which is a glorious thing, and it actually demonstrates patience and forbearance with that brother or sister. So when should you go, though? Right? Because at some point you need to. Well, the first thing is, has the offense, uh, ask this question, has the offense led to a broken relationship between you and that person? Has it led to a broken relationship? I mean, does it, does it absorb your mind? Is it constantly at the forefront of your mind when worshiping Christ and exalting Christ should be at the forefront of your mind? Like, does it distract you, for example, when you gather with the people of God? We're about to have a, worship, like a corporate gathering with your brothers and sisters. Instead of focusing on Christ, instead of focusing on the word preached, instead of focusing on the gospel, what comes to your mind, right? If, if we're singing, for example, like, all praise to him, is it the character and work of God in Christ or is it this brother or sister who's sinned against you? Because if it's at the forefront of your, mi- your mind, I think you have to go to that person. Especially if you partake in the Lord's Supper. Number two, I think another thing you have to consider is what's the danger of this sin to the offender? Like, Is this going to prevent them in growing in Christ? Keep in mind what James says in James 5.20. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. So is the sin that we're talking about endangering this person's ability to accurately and faithfully reflect Christ to the surrounding world? Is it a sign, perhaps, of larger struggles? Or could it eventually lead there? So again, when should I go? Here's what's interesting. Jesus tells us to initiate a conversation whether we are the offender or the offended, which is so countercultural. Matthew 18 tells the wronged person. So if you've been sinned against, Matthew 18 says, hey, you should be seeking out reconciliation with this brother and sister. But here's what's interesting as well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, says that if you think someone has sinned against you, That is, you're the offender, 
then it's also your obligation to go and speak up. Matthew 5 even says that if you're on your way to worship God and you remember your brother has something against you, stop and go and be reconciled. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. That's how much Jesus cares about relationships in the church. That's why it's critical for us to examine our relationships again before we partake of the Lord's Supper, considering the body, being bro- the, the body of Jesus being broken, right? his blood being poured out as a sign of the new covenant, sins being forgiven in him. It's crucial that we do so. So before we look at the next step in Matthew 18, which is taking two or three others, do we have any questions? Anything for clarification? Or maybe a thought? Step two, taking one or two others. Taking one or two others. So let me ask you, who do you take? If this person who has sinned against you, okay, refuses adamantly to repent and to recognize his or her own sin, who do you take? I promise you it's not a rhetorical question. Who do you take? And who are those one or two more? Fellow believers in Christ, okay? If the offending person won't listen, and it is clear that sin has been committed, we're to take one or two others with us, those brothers and sisters in Christ that we have covenanted together with, for example, members at UBC. And it really serves two purposes. First, the offender may more likely listen to a neutral third party than the person who's, uh, than the person who's been sinned against. This other person also serves to witness what happened at the meeting in case discipline advances to the next step. That's why it's really important. So if you've ever been involved with that process, consider this. First, before you take this step, consider how objective the sin is. It's really important. Are you confronting them because you think they are spending too much money? Or because they think because you may think they're prideful? Because at the end of the day, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows their heart. If this is a subjective issue like that, it's likely better to press in in subtle ways, but better really to even drop it and continually pray for that person as the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, seeks to convict them of their sin. But second, if you're moving forward, make sure that that person or people that you bring with you are actually marked as trustworthy, that they're discreet, that they are impartial, Right? That, that, again, you're not trying to build an army or a case with you, but you want those people that are full of wisdom in the church, perhaps even an elder. And third, let the offender know what you're about to do. You don't want to blindside people. Let them know in advance, hey, we need to have a conversation. I think there's something broken. Let's talk about it. Right? Let's not send like emojis and text messages about it. I just want to have a conversation. And then you bring someone with you if he or she doesn't. Uh, repent that's full of wisdom so don't spring a conversation onto them without warning because it also wouldn't be wise on your part or my part and then fourthly be careful not to try to lobby the witness to your side that that again that person needs to be as neutral as possible just let the facts speak for themselves step three tell it to the church tell it to the church if the offender still refuses to listen the church needs to be brought in. 
The church needs to be brought in. And they can excommunicate him or her if he or she still refuses to repent. In Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't specify that the leaders of the church are to be consulted prior to taking the matter to the church. But certainly, that intermediate step of consulting healthy elders and pastors, it kind of seems appropriate, and dare I say implicit, within those instructions. But looking at these steps in Matthew 18 that was read earlier, we can see Jesus trying to involve the fewest number of people possible. And really, off the record here, like what, what's really crucial that I want you to see in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is look how patient Jesus is. He is so patient with people, even in their sin, towards him. And so that's my encouragement to you. It's not that sin should get, get unnoticed, but really consider in God's wisdom, in God's counsel, in his word, how patient are you with this potential brother and sister in their sin? Again, he's involving the fewest number of people possible, but he's also considering the stakes. He's willing to make things public if that's what will wake up this offender from their sin. And sadly, at the final state, he even uses those outside the church and Satan himself to providentially push that person towards repentance because repentance will save that person's life. There's a question. What, what if you see a member sin against another member? What do you think you should do? What, if you, what do you do if you see a member sin against another member? It's uh, Roman numeral four in your handout. What do you do? Go to him. So he or she represents Christ. Good. Galatians 6.1 tells us this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In Luke chapter 17, verse 3, if your brother sins rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible warns us not to be busybodies looking for every opportunity, kind of like a referee always just blowing a whistle. All right, The Bible is warning us not to be busybodies, not to be referees constantly blowing the whistle at every single person that you think may be sinning against you. It's not going to re really get you far, okay? All of us are sinners, and so it would be impossible and really unproductive to call attention to every single sin that we witness, okay? We're not called to be referees. We're called to be brothers and sisters in Christ holding one another accountable. So how do we know when it's appropriate, appropriate time to approach a brother or sister about sin? There's a few things. First, is this sin bringing dishonor to God? Now we know that every sin absolutely is open rebellion against a good, righteous, holy God. Every sin, period, small or great, is dishonoring to God. That's absolutely theologically true. But is the sin bringing dishonor to God? In other words, is it visible enough that it's lying about God to non-Christians looking in? Okay? That's not to say that I'm trying to tweak sin. Like, for example, like, Pete Rose. What Pete Rose did was wrong. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. But what I'm saying is like, is it wrong? Okay? 
Is it visible enough that it's lying about God to non-Christians? Some of you will get that analogy uh, who know Pete Rose. So, Second, is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example by younger Christians? Is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example to younger Christians? And third, could it lead to discord and disunity in the church? I mean, that's what we've been talking about through this whole equipping class with Cliff and Wes and myself. It's how to equip you as the church, but also to cultivate that unity in the church. And so, could it lead to discord and disunity in the church? And fourthly, is it seriously harming the offender by damaging his or her relationship with God or in other ways? Is it seriously harming the offender by damaging his or her relationship with God in other ways? Now, here's the, here's the, here's the deal. If one or more answers to the questions is yes, then it's probably appropriate and best to talk, about, uh, talk to that offender about their sin. It's very important. Again, what's at stake is that it's the reputation of Christ and his glory. And so it's best to, to talk about that with that person. But here's the deal. The less relationship that you have with a person, the higher the bar in talking with them. The better you know them and the more trust in your relationship, the lower the bar. What about heinous sin? Like seriously bad stuff, sin. I know I've been alluding to social media, but this is the type of sin that is absolutely trending. What about heinous sin? Let's look at our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And when someone gets there, if I could have a volunteer to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank you. 
Mm. Heavy. Do any of you, before we move forward, have a few thoughts in the reading of that text? What's going on in 1 Corinthians 5? What all is going on? What are some thoughts you have in regards to that specific passage? In regards to just heinous sin? Because it kind of looks like, right, is this a fast track? Right? There's not like one-on-one confrontation. It's not bringing two or three. Right? It's the immediate final state. Bringing it to the church and in addition to that, expelling that brother for such of that, because of that heinous sin. But what are some thoughts? What are some things that stand out to you in the reading of that text in 1 Corinthians 5? You just throw them out there. Not even the pagans would do it. Blatant, in your face. It's clearly sin. It's well known. It wasn't hidden. So this is kind of the stuff that we're seeing like, you know, this is the, the tabloids, if you will, of Corinth. Like everyone knows about it. It's on the front cover, Okay. Well, one thing for me that stands out is that there is uh, a wrong type of judging that we're not supposed to be engage, engaging in and a right time, uh, type of judging. Like, it kind of goes against the idea of, like, only God can judge me, which is totally true. Uh, God uh, can judge you, and he will judge you in Christ, and everyone will give an account before Christ, and every knee will uh, bow and every tongue will confess his lordship. Absolutely, 100%. But God is also, in Christ, holding us accountable to judging those inside the church in terms of accountability in Christ-like conformity. So... It's heavy. That's right. Discernment in and of itself is a kind of judgment. It's very true. It's very evident in this text. What seems to be going on in 1 Corinthians 5 is that this sin was so heinous, so heavy, so tragic so beyond what was acceptable in society there in Corinth that there's really nothing the man could actually say to convince the church of his repentance. That's how persistent he was in that. Sometimes the credibility of any claim to repentance is so shot that the church should move very quickly to move that person outside of the fellowship. Yes, for the reputation of Christ, for the good of their own souls, but also for the good of that person to recognize his or her sin. How do I relate to someone who's been excommunicated? It's a question that is pretty pertinent. How do I relate to someone who's been excommunicated? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, we read that we should not associate with such a person. Person, excuse me. In Matthew 18.17, Jesus says to treat that person as you would a heathen, a pagan, a tax collector. So what does that practice actually look like, though? Well, it means that we should treat the individual as if he's an unbeliever, but not just any unbeliever, like in terms of like, for example, if you have a casual relationship or or friendship, uh, you know, in your workplace, but an unbeliever who thinks he is spiritually okay and thinks himself to be a Christian. It's totally different. So we should encourage him or her to attend the church, to hear the word of God preached, to, to see the uh, ordinances on display, whether it's believer's baptism, for uh, that person to have the elements pass by as he or she reflects on their sin. 
And we should also act in our attitudes and our tones and our intentions to be loving and kind towards those uh, who are in this camp. But when we see him or her, we should take care to exhort this person to repent. That should, that's what should come off our lips when we're around that person. Whether we see them in the grocery store, we see them in the church, just say, hey, how are you doing? You know, have you considered the weightiness of this sin that you just can't seem to let go? Why won't you let go? Go ahead. Well, we're thankful that you're here. We're thankful that. Yeah. Well, we're thankful that you're here. We're thankful for um, your laughter. Yeah. Well, praise God, you're a new creature in Christ. And you got more in common with people in here who are walking with Jesus faithfully than anyone. And we're glad you're here. And we're glad you're a part of. What is it now? It's not an ABF, it's an equipping class. That's what it is this year. We love that. So we're thankful for you, sister. And it was a, by the way, that was a beautiful reading of the text that you did earlier. So thank you. So, um, yeah, we should never simply interact casually as if nothing is wrong, like we might another Christian or even a non-Christian who knows he's a non-Christian, for example, at work. That's the sense of 1 Corinthians 5.11, not even to eat fellowship was such a one. What if a church leader sins? Dum, dum, dum. Whoa. What if a church leader sins? Here's some indication that we get. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. Write that down. It's in your handout. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. And I'll read that. Do not admit a charge against an elder, thinking interchangeable bishop, pastor, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, so that the rest, meaning those who are gathered, the local church witnessing this, the rest may stand in fear. So here's what we have. The Apostle Paul is giving special attention, special caution to protect elders or pastors from spurious attacks before a discipline action against an elder can be brought, there must be two or three witnesses. The wisdom of this is clear. Church leaders must often engage in situations and in moments that may lead to unfounded accusations against them, especially with people who are upset with their leadership for flippant, casual reasons. Now, with this passage in mind, Let's address two situations that might arise in the church, that might arise. First, what if you hear of rumors? Okay, Not facts, not what's happened. Rumors of an accusation against an elder. And secondly, what if you encounter personally an elder in sin? What do you do? So rumors of accusation. What if someone tells you they've witnessed an elder or pastor in sin, or they think they have? What's your responsibility? Well, first and foremost, as we've said earlier in this topic, to ensure that you are not gossiping and slandering 
that under shepherd that is supposed to be pointing you to the good shepherd, who is Christ. Tell them to talk to that elder first to make things right, not to you, not to entertain gossip. Actively discourage them from slandering that pastor in a conversation like that, who is to oversee your soul. There are two exceptions, though, to this rule. If you two have witnessed that particular sin and this person is coming to you as per the requirement of a witness in 1 Timothy 5.19, or if they're asking you to serve as that witness even though you've personally not been an eyewitness. And what that means, for example, is if tragically a pastor, because we hear of these statistics, we hear of these stories, and it's tragic, it's heavy, it's sad of a pastor, for example, making sexual advances to another female congregation member, and it was only those two people present. Okay, Pastor professes to be a Christian, and then also the female congregation member. Only those two were present. And though you didn't witness the event, it's important for you to be that party, as well as other people, to investigate those claims to see if they're valid or not. So that's what it means to not be an eyewitness, but to be a witness in a matter of, that is so important like that, or even think of things like embezzlement. What if you witness an elder in sin? What if an elder sins against you, or you witness an elder sinning? What do you do then? Talk to them about it. We're not in the game of gossiping. Just talk to them. Keep in mind that the situation may not be as it appears. You may be thinking they're sinning against you, when in reality they're not. It's just a miscommunication, if you will. Act humbly, remembering that they're serving as an elder because at least at some point when you kind of gathered together at a, at a quarterly church conference, you, when you voted yes, potentially with the gathered church, were saying, hey, this brother is above reproach. And so co- go to that brother with that in mind. This is an above reproach under shepherd who I want to make things right with. So it's wise to give them the benefit of the doubt. So what if you're uncomfortable? All right approaching them perhaps though i pray this never happens to you they've sinned in intimidating you or abusing you verbally it's okay to approach that pastor or individual in the church with your concern where your intent is to keep the matter quiet and discreet and involve a minimal like we see even in matthew 18 a minimal number of people you're not violating first timothy 5 19 So let's say that you've discussed the matter with a pastor. Perhaps you've even opened up the Bible, right? It's clear that this brother is in sin and that you've exhorted that brother to repent of their sin, to show them their sin, but he still refuses to repent, refuses to recognize it. What do you do? Again, consider how objective the sin is compared to how subjective it is. If it's an issue of pride, something that you can't be sure of, then stop pursuing the matter and and pray without ceasing. Pray for that brother constantly so that you think well of him. If the matter is something that is objectively verifiable, as we've talked about, for example, sexual misconduct, embezzlement, and other things, then you must continue to follow 1 Timothy 5.19. And depending on on how uh, heinous and, and the legal ramifications, sometimes you have to bring in law enforcement. I say must because discipline, even discipline of a pastor, is not optional in the church. It's your responsibility. This is your responsibility and my responsibility before God. So what's the next step? 
Speak with others you know who witnessed the sin and ask them to confront that pastor with you and if necessary to bring that issue of that pastor to the other pastors so that they understand what's going on because they will be acting as witnesses called for in that passage in 1 Timothy 5. So why does church discipline matter? Why does it matter? Whole range of answers. Purity of the church. What else? Obeying God. Two great answers. Two great pillars. What else? Loving restoration of that person. What else? Mm, such a good sentence. I can't even repeat it out loud. I love it. I love it. Preserving witness. That is so good. What else? Glory of Christ. It's the aim. It's good. Why does it matter? Because the church matters. Why does the church matter? Christ laid his life down for his bride. Testimony of Jesus. Bring people to him. The church only matters when it's different from the world. Okay? Again, thinking of the purity of the bride, the purity of the church. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if... That's right. That's right. To be witnesses. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Matthew 5, verse 13. Church discipline is the tool that Jesus gave us all the way back, as we've seen earlier in Matthew 18, when he inaugurated the church to keep us different from all of the world. And when we look different, we herald the gospel in a profoundly compelling way. We spur each other on toward loving good deeds in Christ. We protect the message of the gospel for the next generation. But when we become just like the world, we are professing that there's nothing unique about the gospel when in reality it's the best news ever told and it's able to save your souls and to keep you in Christ. So my encouragement to you as we've considered church discipline this morning is to keep on keeping on in the gospel. Keep persevering. And see that sin, okay, it's no joke and it's not something that we stroll in casually in the sight of our holy God. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we are not left clueless in the dark. You have given us the revelation of you and, and, and your redemptive plan in Christ and instructions for us as your people in your word. So we're so grateful that you've given us your sufficient, inerrant, infallible word, your inspired word. And in that word, you've given us instructions on how to implement church discipline. Father, if there's anyone that are consuming our thoughts and our minds who, are, who is not you, who has potentially sinned against us, oh Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters in this room, that, and even for myself, Lord, that we would make things right before we gather with the people of God in exalting the name of Jesus this morning. 
Oh, Father, we just pray that you would protect the witness and purity of our church as the watching world looks in. Perhaps it's someone casually just kind of strolling along on the street who wants to consider the Christian truth claims and they come to, to our service. Perhaps it's an unbelieving world looking into us in our, in our corporate offices or perhaps sorority houses right down the street or across the street. Father, what we pray is that we would be distinctively, uh, that we would be different, that we would be unique as the watching world looks in and that we would use the hope of the gospel, the words of the gospel, in terms of sharing that gospel with them to save their souls. Oh God, we just pray that we would take our witness seriously, that we would consider the calling of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we would die to ourselves daily, that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you, commit ourselves to you. Oh God, we just pray that we would consider what sin does and that it entangles us and it could destroy us. And so Lord, we just pray for less events that fall in the camp of 1 Corinthians 5 and more so for repentance to be on display and having those one-on-one conversations with our brothers and sisters. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word incarnate in Christ, for his sinless life, his, his, his sacrificial death, his burial and resurrection, and his one day return for us, your people. In Christ's name, amen.